the In Conversation podcast series with author Nigel Beckles. Welcome to the podcast. Get ready for takeoff. Welcome back to my In Conversation podcast series. My guest for this episode is a multi-award winning recovery coach and speaker who specialises in adverse childhood experiences, Beverly Webb. Hi Beverly, welcome to my podcast series. How are you? Hello Nigel, I'm good, thank you. So what have you been up to recently? Well, as we're coming out of Covid, slowly but surely, it's been quite an interesting three months actually. And it's funny how what we don't expect can challenge us, but not always in the worst way, sometimes in the best way too. Great time to be reflective, good time to take stock of actually where I was emotionally as well because even though I'm a coach it's good to be aware and it's amazing what we feel that we can be challenged with but once we're in it how we use our our own skills and be self-aware mentally physically and emotionally. So where did you grow up and what was it like? So growing up at the age of four I was the eldest of three children. We were taken into care actually, lived in Penge I don't know if you know Penge, Nigel. Very well. So we were, li- oh, we were living in Penge at the age of four and then we were taken by the police and we were placed into care in Alpenton in Kent. And I have to say, I lived there for six years and we had another sibling that joined us as well when he was about six months old. For me, it was actually one of the best things that happened to me. I am the woman I am today because of the people in the children's home and how we were looked after as well. And then at the age of 10, we were returned to live with my parents, who also had another two children. So when we went home, I was actually the eldest of six siblings. And there were six of us, 10 and under. Sadly, we've been returned to parents that were alcoholics. And we didn't realise at the time. It's only through looking back that you can see that. And also their relationship was very toxic. And by the time I was 12... I was the main carer. Both my parents did work and they worked very hard, but then they'd follow that and go into the pub every evening. So I became the the carer to ensure that all the children went to their relative schools in their uniforms. What food we did have when we got home, I'd make sure that they'd have something to eat. And then weekends, I did the shopping, the cleaning and cooking for the whole family. And by the time we were 13, we're in abject poverty. We didn't have gas or electricity. And on Wednesday, November the 8th, I remember coming home from school and I was in senior school then, and that was 1977. And our social worker was sitting in there. And when I say social worker, we didn't have the same social worker with the whole six children. So the three youngest, because we were living under Croydon Borough, the social worker had taken those three children already and they'd been placed in care and myself and my two younger siblings were still under Bromley Borough under a court order from when we were four years of age so we were just waiting for one of my siblings to come home from school and then we were taken into care in Beckenham Beckenham Kent at 15 I really wanted to be part of a normal family and I was very lucky and I was fostered by my English teacher at that time however sadly at 16 I didn't know how to behave in a family because I was always the carer that broke down and I ended up living in a hostel at 16 and it was at 16 that that Christmas time 
I was having dinner with five other vulnerable young people that I realised that we all had these supportive adults around us, whether it be social workers, teachers, etc. But nobody had actually asked any of us what our real story was and what was happening to us and that lots of um, important decisions were made on our behalf, but we were never asked. For me, that was very ironic because myself and most of the children or young people there were also survivors of abuse, be it sexual or physical and emotional. Are you saying that you suffered sexual abuse while you were growing up? Absolutely. My father had actually started abusing me sexually before we were taken into care by the police. And ironically, we weren't taken into care for sexual abuse. Nobody actually realised we were taken into care and placed under a court order for neglect. Clearly, your experiences inspired you to specialise in adverse childhood experiences. When I came across ACEs years ago, what it did for me when you looked at the ACE score was it gave a way of opening conversation. As you know, there's different types of experiences and the ACE score centres around 10 different ones. For me, it's not about how many you've got in a score out of 10. It's about being able to look at the scoring, acknowledge yes or no, and then it enables you to be able to open a conversation. For anybody who doesn't know what the ACE questions are, they can be anything from are you witnessing somebody in your house is being physically abusive to somebody else? And what I have done is changed some of the wording because if you go online, the original questions were set in the 70s. So they can be very much mindful of that era. I've adapted the questions a little bit there. And I find that it's a great way for me to open up conversations with my clients without necessarily taking them back to each and every instance. You mentor helping people recover from stress and trauma and abuse. How difficult is trauma recovery? Trauma recovery at first is very difficult because certain traumas mean that the victim, survivor, and I'm going to use both terms, or even clients, some traumas actually exacerbate shame, they come with guilt, come with judgment, and that judgment from themselves, but also fear of speaking out and being judged. So I'm actually a recovery practitioner certified for chronic illness and the underlying cause is often trauma and we see that a lot later in life in the physicality and often it's the fear of revisiting the trauma that stops people from healing or going forward. So what I tend to do with my clients first of all is reassure them that first of all I'm not a counsellor. So I'm not going to take them back to each individual experience as a child or young person. But what we're going to do is look at where you are now in life. We are going to look at how we go forward. And the only time we're going to look back is we're going to look back and recognize different coping strategies. So for me, with recovery of trauma, it's enabling my clients to feel safe. It's also a mixture of ensuring that my clients have some tools right from the beginning so that they can look at self-care and recognise that if they're getting a little bit anxious, these are your tools you can use for self-care and it's okay. But it's step by step and it's a gradual process. It does take some hard work, but also there is recovery and it is possible. But in the recovery and healing, it never stops. It's like an onion. So you speak at various 
public events. Why did you decide to become an advocate, raising awareness around these issues? What it was about five years ago, 2011, I had two businesses and I was very successful, had two houses and sadly it all collapsed. And that was due to fear of success for lots of different reasons. But also I was still carrying around the shame and stigma of being a survivor of sexual abuse. And sadly, no matter what I did um, in 2015, I went bankrupt. And this was one thing I never wanted to do. I don't know if people are aware, but mental health and finances go hand in hand. So for me, I'd worked really hard to achieve all of this and, and be accepted on the outside. But what I was still carrying around was the shame and guilt inside. And so when I meant, went bankrupt, it had a physical, mental and emotional impact. And I was diagnosed with severe asthma and I was even rushed to hospital. I couldn't speak. So as I was on the settee recovering and I had lots of steroids and I even put on three stone in weight, I really felt that I'd crashed. Well, I had taken a massive crash, but I was really at rock bottom. And, and so I thought, OK, so if you were told you only had six months to live, what is it you truly want to be remembered for? What is it your, what's your true passion that's in your heart? What is it you really want to say, ironically, that came out. And I just sat on my laptop typing away. For me, that was something that was always inside of me. That was my, my secret passion, as I say, the one that was embedded in my heart. And that relates back to when I was 16, as I said earlier, about being in the hostel and knowing that there were these other vulnerable young people around me, we had adults all around us, but nobody had actually asked us any questions about what we were experiencing ourselves and how we felt. So when I speak now, there are four reasons I speak. First is for myself, for the young girl that didn't have a voice. It's secondly for other victims, survivors, that are going through abuse right now, whether that be sexual, physical or emotional, there's always someone here for you. Reach out to a friend, someone professional, find a way. Thirdly, for supporters around us, friends, family, professionals, sometimes by opening the conversation, people want to ask questions, but they don't know if they're going to say the wrong thing or how to say something. Fourthly, and most importantly, is for proactive awareness for children of today to ensure that they can grow up in a safe environment and be able to do the things that they want to do, such as sport, etc. But for the adults to be aware of behaviours and, and also for the children that maybe need some extra help and not judge people or young people on their behaviour, know that they're trying to talk to you. How rewarding do you find being an advocate? It is very rewarding. It takes a lot of work. It also takes a lot of self-care. The topics that I choose to speak about, because I always say I love opening conversations about the things we don't want to talk about and bereavement, finances, suicide. But I very much believe that if we keep quiet, we exacerbate all of those subjects and we make it worse. And unless I share my story, how do people know and how do they trust that it's okay. So Beverly, how can people contact you? That's quite easy actually. First of all, my name is Beverly Webb. You can find me on Facebook and I'm on YouTube. My business is called Step Forward. So it's stepforwardcoaching.online on Instagram and I'm on Twitter. 
stepforwardcoaching.online. I do a lot of social media awareness. There's different videos available on YouTube. Well, Beverly, that's been a very interesting and informative conversation. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. And just to say to anybody, if they've seen something or if there's a young child, they're, they're not sure if they're unhappy. All I'd say is if you're not sure, please do phone the NSPCC and just lodge what's bothering you. Because when I was 13, I was very lucky that three different people did that. And we got taken back into care. And I wish I could go back and thank every person that did that because it made a big difference and it made a difference in our lives. So I just want to finish with that one. Oh, that's great advice. Beverly, thank you very much. Thank you, Nigel. Have you experienced several failed relationships or been through a divorce? How can you avoid making the same mistakes again? How to avoid making the big relationship mistakes is out now. Now you can discover the dangerous myths about love. If your relationship expectations are realistic, why you could be falling in love for all the wrong reasons. How to avoid making the big relationship mistakes. It's a book that could change your life. Available from www.relationshipmistakesbook.com and amazon.co.uk. Kindle version also available. Thank you for listening. Please join me for another In Conversations podcast very soon for more interesting and entertaining discussions. Stay safe.